Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling. All of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Dr. Gleb Sapersky, who is the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts. Let me read a quick bio of Dr. Gleb, and then we'll jump into the episode. Dr. Gleb is an internationally renowned thought leader in future-proofing and cognitive bias risk management. He serves as a CEO of the boutique future-proofing consultancy, Disaster Avoidance Experts, which specializes in helping forward-looking leaders avoid dangerous threats and missed opportunities. A best-selling author, he wrote Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships, and Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. His writing was translated into Chinese, Korean, German, Russian, Polish, and other languages. His cutting-edge thought leadership was featured in over 550 articles and 450 interviews in prominent venues. They include Fortune, USA Today, Fast Company, CBS News, CNBC, Time, Business Insider, Government Executive, The Chronicle of Philanthropy, CNBC, and Inc. Magazine. His expertise comes from over 20 years of consulting, coaching, and speaking and training for mid-size and large organizations ranging from Aflac to Xerox. It also comes from his research background as a behavioral scientist with over 15 years in academia, including seven as a professor at Ohio State University. We have quite a wide-ranging conversation, um, a lot on his white paper um, that he recently launched just around returning to the office and managing hybrid and remote teams, and we get into a lot around work and culture and um, kind of corporate decisions around to- those type of things. So I hope you all enjoyed this uh, interview. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, look forward to you guys listening in. Without further ado, please welcome in Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Dr. Gleb, glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Brian. Really appreciate it. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously the podcast about getting started and, and you know, trying to look at where areas to change and evolve and get better. And I thought it was really interesting with some of the stuff you're doing and you spend a lot of time with, especially helping organizations. And now we're in such a change in our culture, especially mm-hmm. around organizations and um, because of the pandemic and all that. So I thought it was, was cool to bring you on. I want to learn a little bit more about your story as we go through, but really want to start off. I thought, I thought the white paper you did was, was fascinating. Um, and just a lot of the you know, you kind of hear this in conversations, you know, you know, talk with friends and, and those type of things, but how many people actually want to work remotely, like me, mm, um, yeah. prefer to work remotely, but there's a lot of folks that still have that kind of old school mentality of, yeah. no, we got to get back in the office. So I, I thought we'd do this though. If if you could do this for me, because this will be huge for me and, and well, the listeners, I want you to define two terms first, 
before mm-hmm. we go down the path, because I know we're going to talk deep about some of this stuff. Um, one is future proofing and what you mean by mm-hmm. that, because I know it's a big part of, of what you deal with, and then cognitive bias. So just to find those first sure. um, for everyone to set the tone for the uh, conversation. Sure, happy to. And then we'll talk about returning to office, managing mm-hmm. hybrid and remote teams, all that good stuff. But yep. let's talk about first future proofing. That's the essence of what I do. Our future is increasingly disrupted. We see that from the pandemic itself. We see that from how people are recovering from the pandemic. We see that from the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis. I mean, rise of the smartphone, all these things. Our future is more and more disrupted. And we need to protect ourselves, protect our future from this disruption. And we can do it if we practice future-proofing. Future-proofing is the art and science of making sure that we protect ourselves from these disruptions and maximize our opportunities in this increasingly disrupted future by making the best decisions possible and managing risks in the most effective manner. So that's what future-proofing involves, making sure that you make the best decisions and manage risks effectively. Now, most of us, when we think about decision-making, we think about advice, going with our gut. Go with your gut, follow your heart, trust your intuitions, That's what we hear, and that's what we get about decision-making, going with your gut. Unfortunately, recent research, I'm coming from a research-based background, cognitive neuroscience, behavioral economics, all that good stuff. Those behavioral science research shows that going with your gut is actually very bad for us. (laughs) Why is that? Well, unfortunately, our gut reactions are not wired for the mother environment. They're wired for the savannah environment. When we lived in small tribes of 50 to 150 people, when we were hunters, gatherers, and foragers, we had to have that fight or flight response you know, to get away from the saber-toothed tigers. You might have heard of it as a saber-toothed tiger response. Jump at 100 shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. You know, that's a big problem. And tribalism is a huge problem where we look for people like us who share our values, and we dislike people who don't look like us and don't share our values. That was great in the Savannah environment when that helped us survive and thrive. You know, with the descendants of those who are very tribal, who had a very strong fight or flight reflex, otherwise we wouldn't have survived. But in the modern environment, that's a bad idea. So when you hear Tony Robbins tell you to be primal, be savage, that is terrible, horrible advice. Do not listen to Tony Robbins. <laughs> that is not good. And that's where cognitive biases come from. So your second term of definition, that's what cognitive biases are about. Cognitive biases are the dangerous judgment errors our minds tend to make because of how they're wired, which is informed by our evolutionary background, again, not wired for the modern environment, and just the structure of our brain, how various components interact with each other. So because of that, we make these big, big errors, cognitive biases, that we need to address. And if we address them effectively, we can make the best decisions to manage risks wisely and future-proof ourselves in this increasingly disrupted world. Mm. So that's what those two terms are about, and that's what I do. And, and this may lead us into the conversation on remote work versus kind of going back in the office. Is there a point, because I guess, you know, I'm one of those that always like, I, I go with my intuition, I go with my gut, you know, I kind of feel it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, maybe, maybe I shouldn't always do that, but at yeah. what point do you go the other way too much? Like when you get, you're looking for too much data or too much information and you almost get hamstrung with making a decision. Do you so, find that you can go to the other way too, too far? Well, that is an issue in cognitive bias. When you're looking for too much data, you're actually going with your gut as well, because that means that you're showing fear. 
you're showing worry about making the decision mm -hmm. and you're looking for too much information. So it, there's a cognitive bias, we're talking about cognitive biases here called information bias. When you're looking for too much information that doesn't really matter for making the decision. So this first step in making a good decision, decision-making practice is deciding how much information and what kind of information you need in making the decision. You don't just go out and gather all the possible information because lots of information is not going to be very relevant. Mm -hmm. You need to understand what information is relevant and that's the first step you, you go and use in making the decision. Sometimes very little information is relevant, sometimes lots of it. Usually it depends on the importance of the decision. So when you have huge companies, let's say, well, what happened with Google? Google for many, many months was saying that we won't want all employees to go back to the office. Kept saying that, saying that, saying that. Well, on May 5th, Google said that we screwed up, we're sorry, you made a mistake. We'll have 20% you know, of our workforce working full-time remotely and 20% you know, working from any of our local offices wherever they want to work and we'll have 60% you know, coming into their office that they were originally there, but you know, for only one to two days a week not full-time, not Monday through Friday, nine to five. Mm -hmm. What happened there? Well, the Google leadership clearly screwed up very badly in their plans for returning to the office and the kind of information they gathered. And from my internal sources at Google, I have heard that very many people left, surprisingly many people left, because, I mean, many people already moved during the pandemic, and many people found out just basically that they can work remotely, just like you, Brian, that they can work remotely full-time, and that's great, and that's what they prefer. And, you know, people at Google can find jobs elsewhere. So lots of folks left Google, unfortunately for Google, and then morale took a big hit, and, of course, they lost just many millions of dollars in their strategic planning shifts. So you have many millions of dollars Big, big hit to morale and, of course, top employees leaving because Google, trillion-dollar company, <laughs> is making terrible decisions about returning to the office. Same thing for another trillion-dollar company called Amazon, a little $1.8 trillion, right? That's that rolled its plans back on June 10th. Again, similar thing. Many, many months saying, we'll go back to the office full-time, whatever. And now it's saying, well, we screwed up. We're sorry. Because people are leaving. Again, all of that sort of stuff cost them millions of dollars. Now employees at Apple, which wants to go back to the office full-time, again, are rebelling publicly, which is very unusual for Apple employees, saying that we'll have lots of employees leaving. This is a big problem. You really need to turn it back. You're screwing up in the same way that you know Amazon and Google have screwed up. So we see that the leaders at the very, very top levels, you know, the, we only have a couple of trillion dollar companies and the trillion dollar companies, three of them, you know, Microsoft excluded, have made these terrible decisions. So these decisions, and I was, I'm working also with a peer executive group of executives who run middle market, small, middle and middle market companies. So up to 2000 employees, including people who recently got started and joined these peer executive groups. Mm -hmm. So this peer executive organization, many, many thousands of CEOs, founders, and so on, less than half of them did surveys of their employees on what their employees want in returning to the office. Mm -hmm. Less than half of them, 44%. Wow. That's ridiculous. That's terrible decision making. When you're, you know, talking about gathering information, you're not even trying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not even trying to gather information. I can guarantee to you that many, many of these folks 
will regret their poor choices right now on returning to office and deciding on the workplace of the future in their work. And this all goes back to, would you say then, that cognitive bias of like, no, if I can see you, if you're in the office, that means you must be doing work. If you're not in the office, you're not doing work. Like that was the the mentality. Maybe it's still like that. Is that, would you agree with that? That's kind of why they're yes. trying to pull people back in? Yeah, there are a couple of cognitive biases involved here. So let's talk about them. One of them is exactly what you're saying, that oversight. It's called the illusion of control. So the illusion of control is a cognitive bias that causes us to feel that we have much more control over others and over the situation in general than we actually do. Now, when someone comes to the office, you know, that Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, 40 hours a week, how much time do they actually spend working? When you look at the research on how much time for observational studies and from from looking at things like Slack and Microsoft Teams, which can track people's work and so on, keystrokes, we all find that people only spend about 20 hours of their time working, Mm. only about 20 hours. The rest of the time, you know, people chat, people walk around, people get coffee, they, you know, play on their smartphone, you know, maybe visit a, the, visit Amazon for some shopping or stuff like that, you know, check out Facebook, their personal email. They don't actually spend that time working. So when you, people are there and when they look like they're working, I mean, they know how to look like they're working when the boss is walking by them, right? <laughs> and that is a big, big problem. The boss feels like he overwhelmingly in the situation, he, you know, kind of the big male boss, uh, feels like he has control, but he has much less control than he actually thinks over the employees. And employees notoriously don't like to be micromanaged. Mm. So do you really want that performative aspect of employees coming to the office and and performing like they're working rather than actually working? Now, going back to the reality of the situation, we see from extensive studies, lots and lots of surveys. So surveys done by and on working to the working in the office or working remotely, organizations like the Harvard Business School, Society for Human Resource Management, Microsoft, Slack, many, many other companies showing that people who work outside the office remotely are actually quite a bit more productive overall. 10 to 14% more productive on average. And that doesn't apply to every employee. But on average, 10 to 14% more productivity when they're working remotely. And it's understandable. When you look at the number one complaint of people who don't want to work in the office, it's because of the commute. You know, an hour they're stuck in traffic, an hour they're stuck back. That is not great. That's two hours, essentially, of unpaid work. And you know what? People actually work less because of that time. When people started working remotely during the pandemic, on average, they work 20 hours more per month. 20 hours more per month. That's a lot more time because they didn't do the unpaid labor of working, of doing the commute to travel and other sorts of hassles associated with working in the office, like going through security and, you know, while doing, doing all that sort of stuff. That's not great. So here we're seeing that people are quite a bit more productive and they're spending more time when they're working remotely, right? They're actually working more and they're producing more, they're delivering more. So we clearly are seeing that there's benefits and that the research is showing on people working remotely. So here's the illusion of control. That's a big problem. Well, Dr. Glover, if I can just interject for one second, because I want to, I want to underscore that. And and just obviously personally me, you know, I work full-time software sales role. And I looked at it as, you know, I was commuting, call it 25 minutes, 
back and forth. So almost 15 minutes a day. And then you got to walk in the office, you set yourself up, you know, maybe it's a full hour. Yeah, that's but a one part of your commute. Yeah. And well, you talked about that illusion of control. One of the things that I found with the remote work, and I had been fortunate, I've worked remote jobs in the past. And I, I it was easier for me. I love working remote. I, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I think I'll always work remote going forward. But is that I could take a break for five or 10 minutes. So those two hours, you know, which was, you know, about 10 hours a week or so, I could feel okay taking a 10 minute walk around the block and, and kind of getting away and then mm-hmm. coming back refreshed versus, and I've heard this from other people, you're in the office, that oversight you mentioned, you kind of feel like, well, if I leave, you know, and someone doesn't see me there now that, that um, the optics of like, oh, where's Brian? He's slacking off or, you know what I'm saying? Like being mm-hmm. able when you're away and, and alone kind of at home, you can kind of walk away and take a yeah. break, but you're not actually like, losing any hours because again you've just saved all that time from mm-hmm. all the commute so i just wanted to kind of underscore like that's at least from my mind what i went through of just being able to focus on some things that are actually good for your health and your mental ability to go back and actually perform your best you know oh yeah you're absolutely right and when you look at the research so we're talking about how people spend their time in the office People do take those breaks, but they're not physical breaks. They're mental breaks. <laughs> they're mental breaks when you go and check Facebook. They're mental breaks right. when you go and check Amazon or when you check your personal email, check the news or whatever. You know, watch lolcat, watch uh, YouTube videos. Those mental breaks, we can't focus all this time. That's effortful. And it's much healthier to take a break by walking around the block than it is to take a break by, you know, watching some YouTube videos. Because you get some physical motion that's good for you. There is extensive research on that. You're not spending all that time sitting down and kind of performing work. And you're also not having that oversight over your shoulder, the constant sense of anxiety, that mental strain and burden. You're not having that. And people are much happier in that sort of environment. And happy workers mean productive workers. So all of that contributes to productivity. So that is, you're absolutely right, Brian. So that's kind of one set of issues around the Mm -hmm. illusion of control. Another set of issues has to do with the status quo bias. The status quo bias is one of these dangerous judgment errors that has to do with the prefer- our preference of employers, of leaders, bosses, to stick to what they perceive as the status quo or get back to it. So they perceive the status quo. They've been successful for 30 years in their career, 40 years in their career, through in-office environments, in-office interactions, in-office oversight over their teams. And that's what they want to go back to. They want to turn back the clock to January 2020. Well, you know, i got news for you. We'll never go back to January 2020. Right. The world has been fundamentally disrupted. And there is no way we will actually turn back the clock to that time. We need to go forward, not backward. And these leaders who want to go backward, they're not realizing that they're trying to turn back the clock to something that is the past, that's not the future. So they're stuck in the status quo and they're trying to bring back that world and they're making serious mistakes because they are blind to the disruption that has caused our new world and the future of work is different than what they prefer. So that's the status quo bias and hits us in many, many areas, including in returning to the office. So when you're thinking about, you know, just getting started and looking at starting up your activities, you want to make sure that you have a fresh start. You don't fall for the status quo. Don't adopt the same perspectives, the same techniques, the same strategies that you're used to. So that's a really important element of starting effectively and just recovering from any sort of major disruption. You know, crisis is a terrible thing to waste, as people say. Yeah. The status quo bias is this big one. Another big one is called the false consensus effect. So the false consensus effect. 
we tend, so going back to tribalism, we tend to feel that those people who are part of our tribe have the same values, beliefs, and preferences that we do. And of course, our modern tribe is the workplace. So the leaders at the top levels, at all levels, you know, whether it's a small enterprise, mom and pop shop, or you know, Amazon or Google or you know, Apple, Uber also just you know, mid, mid June decided that it will not force everyone to go back to work, and lots of other places. And I know that have are trying to force employees to go back to the office Monday through Friday, nine to five, and people are really complaining and resigning. So this is something that's clear a, a distinction between what the leaders perceive and their values and beliefs and those of their employees. And the leaders are not realizing this. That's why it's called the false consensus effect. They falsely believe that their employees share their values and predispositions. You know, maybe they feel something like, well, the employees are saying that they would like to work full-time remotely or maybe hybrid coming in no more than one day a week. But, you know, they'll accept it if we force them to go back to the office. Well, newsflash, the employees have a lot of opportunities. This is called, this is the called period of the great resignation for a reason. Lots and lots of companies are hiring right now and lots and lots of people are leaving their positions. So it's really dangerous for employers to make these decisions about going back to the office and then expecting that their employees will follow their leads. So this, uh, did you want to say something? Well, no, I was, I I, I couldn't agree more because I see, you know, sometimes you, that you make those decisions, as you were saying, even earlier, kind of make those decisions away from everyone else. You don't survey, you don't ask, and then you just kind of assume, and all of a sudden you throw that on the table and it's like, whoops, cat's out of the bag. Um, and, and even though you might change your mind down the road, the trust is lost. That's right. That's exactly right. And the way that people gather information is another sort of problem. So I've worked, this information is based on my work with 12 companies looking at how companies are returning to the office. So I was consulted with them on returning to the office and the future of work. And I interviewed 61 top leaders. And before I came in, what happened for many, many of these companies, how they were making these decisions, is that they, this, the CEO would talk to the C-suite, you know, chief technology officer, chief operating officer, chief human resources officer, and the C-suite would talk to their senior VPs, and that's it. And that's the conversations that would happen. So you have people who are in the same boat. So you have, they've been successful for 30, 40 years, top senior leaders, successful for you know, 30, 40 years in their careers, through in-office activities, and they're talking only to each other. So the confirmation bias is the problem here. The confirmation bias refers to us having a tendency to look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. So that's another big problem, how we gather information about these topics. Not simply not doing surveys, but when you're gathering information for talking to people who are just like you in similar roles and similar positions, similar, definitely similar values, that's a big, big problem. So confirmation bias is an issue. And the last one that I want to talk about, the last cognitive bias that's really a problem here is called functional fixedness. So it's called functional fixedness. That's the hammer nail syndrome. When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when we have a certain fixed perception of how we should function, how we should work, how we should do our activities, we will tend to stick to that. So whether, and what happened, you can look at the example of the lockdowns in March, 2020. 
when those lockdowns happened very suddenly, very rapidly, what happened was that companies overwhelmingly applied their pre-existing in-office culture to doing full-time remote work for everyone for over a year. And that's kind of ridiculous because when you think about it, your in-office culture is adapted to in-office interactions. Zoom happy hours don't work very well. People have, you know, and but companies kept doing them and so on. And so many other problems where companies kept applying, transposing their in-office culture on these virtual activities. That's a really bad idea. So now when they're trying to transition and many companies are deciding over half of them, when we look at various surveys, something like 60 to 60% of companies, 70% of companies are doing some kind of hybrid, you know, one to three days a week for their employees. And these companies are still not adapt, still transposing their in-office culture on these hybrid activities, and on, and they have some of their workforce, ten to thirty percent, you know, full-time remote, and they're still applying this to these folks. This is a bad idea. You need to strategically adapt the way your culture is, the way you function together, the way you collaborate, the way you do performance evaluation, the way you do upskilling and training to the future of work the overwhelmingly hybrid slash fully remote workforce. And many companies are, most companies are, are failing to do that. So that's the functional fixedness problem. Yeah, and, you know, the way that we've adapted so quickly with technology, um, and again, I'm an older millennial, so I kind of got the best of maybe both worlds, I like to say. But uh, to your point earlier was like, yeah, all those senior leaders, they're probably not not necessarily always the case, but let's say the majority of them are probably older than a lot of their employees. A lot of the employees are millennials or mm -hmm. Gen Z or what have you. And you have to start adapting to how are those employees living their life? How do they go about their day? And if you're only making decisions based on what you know for 30, 40 years, you're going to miss the boat by a wide margin, right? So <laughs> kind of looking at the, the, the grand scheme of things. Um, you're absolutely right, Brian. And these uh, millennials, you know, I'm also an older millennial, was born in 1980, so just the start of the millennial <laughs> generation, right? So the people, I grew up already with the early internet, but people who are in the millennial generation, Gen Zs and so on, we grew up with, you know, so I, I still had the transition to the internet. People who are slightly younger than me really grew up with the internet, native digital. They're much more comfortable, much more used to that virtual full-time workforce, and they really are comfortable navigating this. Whereas the leaders, bosses are often very not comfortable because they started their careers in the 1980s, 19, you know, some even 1970s. They had 40-year career, 30-year career. Offices got digitized only in the odds, only in the new millennium. I mean, you know, some tech offices got digitized in the late 1990s. So they are not used to it. And they're not, that's not what they were, that's not what the status quo is for them. That's not where they're anchored. So they are anchored, their initial impressions, and that's called the anchoring bias, their initial impressions of how to work in the office come from not digital or not digitized offices, come from yeah. fully in-person activities. Whereas people who have, or millennial, late millennials especially, Gen Zs, they are native digital and they had that environment their whole lives. And they came to the office through that environment. And so they're much more comfortable navigating this environment. And if you want to be an effective leader to millennials and Gen Zs, you need to, as Brian, you rightly point out, 
figure out where they are and adapt to their needs. Well, I think this is going to come to another, I'm going to go on a little tangent here. I'm curious your thoughts on, but it's also, we live in an age one, we have so much information available, right? And access, mm-hmm. it's not just so much information, it's the access, the information that, you know, all I had was, you know, a handful of channels growing up uh, that had information besides just cartoons and stuff. And I had the encyclopedias. That's about it when I, you know, when I was, cause I was born in 83. Um, but I look at now and how big, like, you know, think about like prioritization and life hacks you hear, like I, mm-hmm. everyone's trying to optimize. So to what I mentioned earlier, when I look at, wait a minute, I'm in a car 50 minutes a day. I'm, I'm commuting for maybe 60. When you start looking at the other things of commute, you know, unpacking stuff, like that's ridiculous. Why yeah. don't I use that time more wisely? So I think that's also to the, the changing mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, of a lot of the younger generation. But to that point, I, I'm curious your thoughts on this. And ironically, I literally wrote, I wrote a little blog article about this. Um, it, it posted today, ironically, um, which is interesting, but is around the work week. You know, mm-hmm. you mentioned a lot of folks going back to the nine to five, the five days a week. What are your thoughts on, I, I propose the three day work week, just to kind of be different. But what are your, what are you hearing, I guess, or your thoughts on a four day work week, three day work week, what what's going on out there in those conversations um, mm-hmm. when folks are thinking about doing it differently going forward? So I think it's a mistake to focus on the number of days in the work week. When you look at the research, and I'm very much research oriented as you can hear, when you look at the research on how human beings function best, when you look at what makes people effectively function, it's flexibility, flexibility mm-hmm. and autonomy. So what you need to focus on is being fl- flexible and giving people autonomy. You know, it's fine for some people to have a seven-day work week, (laughs) to work every day as long as they work for a brief period each day. Mm. It's fine for some period to have, for some people to have a three-day work week as long as they work all that time, right? But as long as they have flexibility, that's the key. So for a team, what you want to be thinking about is some coordination. So something that I very strongly advocate as a best practice for all digital, for hybrid teams, for people who are coming into the office one day a week or two days a week, and especially for all virtual teams. It's called digital co-working. So digital co-working, what's that about? When you don't, so for any hybrid team that's not coming to the office on a work day, or for any virtual team, you know, let's say however many days you decide to coordinate, let's say three, four, three, four days a week. And what you do on those days is have an hour or two where you have a video conference call where you don't intend to talk to each other. You start the video conference call just by sharing what you intend to work on individually during that time. You work on things individually, not with each other. And so you work on your individual tasks. So you focus, share what you're going to co-work on during that period. And then you turn your microphones off, you leave your speakers on, and you can leave your video on or off, whatever you prefer. Then if you have questions of your team members during that time, which of course arise sometimes, you can turn your microphone on and ask those questions. Many people for whom I've set up the system have just saved up their questions for that time, or they choose to work on a task during that period where they know they might have questions. Mm. And then that's a really connecting activity. At the end of that hour or two, you then turn on your videos and your microphones, each one shares what they accomplished, and that's all, and you, and you f- finish up that period. That's a very connecting activity, and that's an activity that coordinates team members together and allows you to collaborate much more effectively 
to reproduce some of the benefits of that in-office environment where you can go to you know Joe's desk and say, hey, Joe, can you help me with this thing? I know you know more about it than I do, or you know, I have a question about this. So that is a really effective activity. So that's something that you can make sure to do, collaborate, set up collaborative activities where you can coordinate with your team members on things that where you, you might have questions. So that's separate from collaboration where you have a virtual meeting and video conference where you collaborate on an active project. Mm -hmm. This is for your individual tasks. And that's something you really should do each day while, while you work, while your team members work, to make sure to have that team connection and cohesion going on with each other, that sense of team presence. Now, as long as you have that, the rest of your time, you should have pretty free. Now, you should have some expectations of how quickly you will answer messages in certain workdays. So you can have you know, something like, you know, during these four days, we will answer messages sent between 10 and, you know, 3 p.m. within, you know, three hours or something like that. And other than that, you should really have a lot of autonomy for how you do your activities. And that autonomy, that flexibility, is what has been shown to be the best practice for actually getting stuff done. Because, if, you know, especially for people who look at life hacks and productivity optimization, you'll know that we have different energy for different parts of the day. Mm -hmm. And most of us, you know, some of us have energy, more energy in the morning, some of us have more energy in the evening. That's why seven-day work weeks work best for some people, because if they have the most energy in the morning, they, you know, they can do a, so, a several hours of work in the morning and then just take the afternoons off or whatever they want to do. And some people choose to do, you know, they concentrate their work week. So that's something that you want to be thinking about and flexibility, autonomy, and your energy for the day while coordinating and collaborating with your team members. Mm. I love the the digital co-working idea because, you know, I find that sometimes like we use Teams and you, know, you send a message and then it could be several hours before you get an answer back. Now you almost have to leave the task you're on to go finish the other one because you had a question. So I kind of like that. Um, putting that time together. That's actually really interesting. Going back to what I was mentioning at the, at the before, and yeah, because we look at it in, in terms of days, but I, I guess, would you encourage, or I guess, what does the research show from a standpoint of hours versus, um, so let's say, let, let's take, you know, 30 hours a week or 35, if you do three hours, you know, 12 hour days for three days, or you do whatever, let's say we're getting around 30 to 40 hours ish, or is it more outcome based? Here's the five things that you got to get to this week. And that, you know, some people can get those done in 12 hours. Other weeks, it might take them 50. But having like, you need to be in the office, this goes back to the old, like, I need to see you from nine to five. Hmm. Okay. But because I'm burnt out, because of all this stuff, maybe I'm not even getting as much as I could get done in half the time. What, yeah, are you, what, what is the research kind of showing there? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ned. And that's something that the research has been showing even before going back before the pandemic, and especially when you're working on hybrid slash fully remote schedules, the old style performance evaluation is gone, dead. It is a really bad, bad idea. <laughs> so, I mean, of course, some companies will take a while to transition out of it, but it is a really bad idea. The once in you know, a quarterly evaluation, or especially one big annual evaluation, where it's based essentially on how much time you've spent in the office and how long the boss has seen you mm -hmm. and your relationship with the boss. That's, that's a very bad idea. What the research suggests is a best practice, especially for hybrid and virtual folks, is to have performance evaluation that's based on accomplishments, not time spent. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So based on accomplishments, based on deliverables, based on your productivity, what do you, have you produced? How, what are your accomplishments? What are your deliverables? And then as part of that, your evaluation shouldn't be this one huge performance evaluation, but should be a series of small weekly performance evaluations where you have a meeting of 15 to 30 minutes with your supervisor. And before that, you send to your supervisor a brief report of you know, your top three to five accomplishments for that week then what were your challenges, how you dealt with those challenges, and uh, what you plan to work on next week, and then a self-evaluation of some sort. And then your supervisor in that meeting, you discuss the accomplishments, You maybe, they, maybe she or he coaches you on how to do your, uh, how to solve those problems better. You discuss and agree or revise the plans for accomplishments for next week, and then you agree or revise the self-evaluation for performance. And then that self-evaluation for performance gets fed into a continuous promotion and evaluation system. Mm -hmm. So that sort of system, that promotion evaluation system, is very much aligned and based, and I talk about this in the book that I sent you, the the benchmarking to best practice for returning to office and managing hybrid and remote teams, benchmarking the best practices for competitive advantage talks about all this stuff, including the performance evaluation piece. And that is something that has been shown to be a best practice that for the future of work. So that will help address the problem of you know, how much time do you work versus what you get done? Because who cares? Your employer should not care how much time you work. Your employer should care about what you get done. What are you finding? So obviously with remote work as a hot topic, we talked about the work week. I'm sure that's coming up. Is there anything else that's that's a really uh, top of mind when you're working with different clients, um, whether it's a large organization or it might be one of these smaller ones? Any Anything else? And I'm, I'm looking at the the new business, someone that's really, you know, has a, a growth kind of stage right now is going to be hiring a lot. Things that maybe they should be considering over the next one to two years as they grow their business and, and will have employees. One thing you want to be thinking about is how you're making the decisions on how who is go is hybrid, how much time they spend in the office, if whether they do fully remote work, all of these sorts of things. Who is making the decision? How is the decision made? You know, it shouldn't be just a magical snap of the fingers and the CEO making the decision, even though you know, you're the founder and you want to make all the decisions. That is not the best practice for making the decision on the, what your employees are doing. The best practice for making the decision is to make sure that the team leads at the local level, the ones who are actually supervising the rank and file employees are making those decisions and the decisions are made based on how much collaboration people need to do. So here's the thing. Individual tasks, and we have a lot of research showing this, the vast majority of people who have a normal workspace at home who don't have you know, loud workspace, lots of roommates, all that stuff, can best get done their individual tasks at home. They're much more productive. There's many less disruptions. They're much more comfortable in their home or in their home office. Mm-hmm. So that is really important for your the home for their individual tasks to be done in the home office. Collaborative tasks depends on the task, depends on the person. Many collaborative tasks are best done in the office. So when you're thinking about you know, let's say people doing hybrid, how many days a week do you want people to come into the office? That should be determined by the intensity and nature of their collaborative tasks. So people, you know, if they have a lot of collaborative tasks, maybe they come in two days in the office. If they have a small amount of collaborative tasks, maybe one day in the office, and maybe they have they are fully virtual remote 
if the collaborative tasks can be done fine virtually. So you, that's how you want to be thinking about it. That's how you want to be making the decision. So it's kind of a one aspect of things. Second aspect of things is making sure that you fund their home offices. So you're saving, going to be saving a lot of money on the not, no need for real estate and no need for office-based services, all that stuff. So you want to be thinking about, well, you, your employees should be comfortable and should be productive in their home offices. Again, that means getting them the right technology, you know, making sure that they have not simply good laptops. I mean, that's obvious. But having good cameras, good microphones, and good lighting. They can see each other. They can communicate effectively. The employee himself or herself is not going to be hurt. It's not going, it's not going to be a problem for them if they have a bad camera, bad microphone, bad lighting. It's going to be a problem for everyone else, for their team members. You don't want to set up a problem for their team members who are going to be barely able to hear someone and who are not going to be able to see them very well and thus not be able to communicate effectively through facial expressions. So you want to make sure that everyone has good technology for themselves. And then ergonomic furniture. When people have ergonomic, comfortable furniture, they are simply more productive. I mean, that's just obvious. So that's a really good investment of your money into ergonomic furniture. For people who don't have their own separate office, a room separator is definitely a good investment so that their kids aren't bothering them and all that stuff. So funding their home office is important. Another thing is thinking about risk management. Your office is now going to be distributed. Your office is not going to be simply in your physical location. Your office is going to be in the office, home offices of all of your employees. How are you managing the risks that are associated with it? You know, if someone is in Florida and they have a hurricane coming up, is the, there are several people there, let's say. Do, are, is there backup and cross-training for the people who might be hit by a hurricane and be out of the loop for a week or two? So you want to make sure that the group of people who are living in Miami have another group of people who's cross-trained to cover for them just in case. And of course, we have the heat dome in Port, you know, Portland and Seattle. We have the fires in California. All of these sort of things. You need to think about risk management and you need to think about cross-training to make sure that people are covered for whatever activities need to be done. So though that's something that you want to be thinking about going forward. And the other thing that you want to be thinking about going forward is upskilling. People aren't used to, aren't used to working effectively in hybrid and remote fashion. I'm shocked by how few companies invested into virtual communication and virtual collaboration training when we had the shut lockdowns in March 2020. Virtual communication, I mean, communication, right? So many companies invested a lot into communication training for their employees prior to the pandemic. They invested a lot into teamwork for their employees prior to the pandemic. Well, virtual teamwork, virtual collaboration is really different from in-person. Virtual communication is really different from in-person. But so few companies have spent money on training their employees for virtual communication, virtual collaboration. And hybrid is another thing altogether. So you need to be able to know how to communicate effectively with some people in the room being in the present and some people in the room being virtual. That's a difficult thing to not make the people who are virtual second-class citizens. And both individual attendees need to be trained on this. 
the ones who are in the room and the ones who are coming in virtually. And the meeting facilitator needs to be trained on this. So all of these sorts of things, virtual communication, hybrid communication, virtual collaboration, hybrid collaboration, you need to train folks for it. And training folks for it, that's a really good investment for all the things that you got going on going forward as you're growing. A lot of good, a lot of good stuff to think about there. <laughs> what, uh, what made you want to leave academia and actually go in and run your business? What was there? Was there something that I, you know? Because we're talking about getting started, I figured I'd just ask you, like, why the transition for you? Um, is it just? Did something happen to you know to kind of make that bold bet? Well, I've for twenty years, twenty one years already. I've been to, I've been doing you know, twilighting as an academic uh, and uh, doing consulting, coaching, training okay. on the side as an academic. So all of this time I've been doing this, and, but about three, no, four years ago already, I left academia, as you're saying, to go do this full time. And the reasons, I mean, several reasons. One is I was getting more and more clients. So I was clearly seeing that I can do this. Second, I was kind of getting tired of students who didn't know the pragmatics of what I was teaching them on making the best decisions, future-proofing cognitive bias risk management. They didn't realize how to apply this to the real world. I much prefer working with entrepreneurs. You know, a lot of my clients are these middle market companies, growing entrepreneurs, and they understand these problems. It's a pain point for them. Mm -hmm. They have so many gray areas. They're not sure about how to make this decision, that decision. It's a really difficult issue. They're struggling every day with this. And it's so fascinating and rewarding for me to see the light shine in their eyes and sweep away the gray areas and make very clear black and white what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing, how they should be spending their time and how they shouldn't be spending their time, how to make this decision and how to make sure to future-proof your companies and address these cognitive biases. That's been so fascinating for me and something that gives me a great deal of pleasure, joy, and reward. So that is what caused me to mm. leave academia and really go into doing this full-time, running my own small company, six people consulting, coaching, and, and training disaster avoidance experts is the name of the company, and I'm the CEO. What's, the, uh, what, what's been the hardest part for you, kind of transition into the full-time? Is there something you would kind of, you know, kind of highlight of like, man, that was such a pain in the neck going through. <laughs> Anything in particular you recall from the last four years, let's um, say? Sure. I think probably managing people has been the most difficult thing. As an academic, you're kind of a solopreneur. You do your own papers, you teach your own things. And of course, as a moonlighting academic, you're a solopreneur. I didn't have any people working for me. So right. just because it was part-time. Learning how to manage my own team. It's a six-people company. You know, There are a couple of people who do the consulting, coaching, and training. I'm the CEO. And uh, there are others who do this. And then we have some marketing people, some internal administrative people learning how to manage these folks effectively has been the, definitely the most difficult aspect of things. Learning to negotiate, figure out what to delegate to people, figure out what to do myself, figure out how to train up people. All of these issues have been, I think, really challenging. And we've been a virtual first company. I mean, there are a couple of people who are here located with me, but there are lots of people who they're, I think, yeah, so four of our team members. Now another one is located here with me, and four of our team members are located elsewhere. So having that virtual interaction, I know very well what it means and how to manage it. 
and but by now but starting up like <laughs> there wasn't very much guidance in how to run and manage virtual teams effectively and so that was a difficult thing for me hmm. do you think having that experience not like you know because when you're in academia or you said kind of doing stuff here and there you maybe didn't have employees you're doing it by yourself now actually managing and having to make those decisions yourself is it a different perspective on it as you work with these organizations because it's like I got to make these decisions, you know, I got to actually do these. Did you, have you found a change in, in perspective on what those folks go through um, to basically understand them differently? I don't think I found a change in perspective on what the people actually go through. It's more change in my emotions. When mm -hmm. I advise people, it's very much kind of, I'm looking at it and I can see objectively from the outside, okay, you're making a decision, you're screwing up here. When I'm doing this, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I have always been advised people on, of course, I integrate it into the company. That's why the company is successful. But what the challenging part for me has been the emotions. So the feelings I have for people when I need to give people constructive critical feedback or my employees, or you know, when I notice that they're screwing something up and I need to decide how to do things, or you know, we've had people who weren't successful in the company, so having to transition them out of the company. The feelings are quite a bit different when you are the employer and when you are responsible for them. When I, you know, I feel responsible for them and I feel responsible for what's going on and I feel kind of certain discomfort and the negative feelings. So having that sort of sense of responsibility and relationship with the employees it is emotional in a way that ad advising other leaders on what to do doesn't have those inherent emotions for me. So I've had to do a lot of internal emotional labor on myself to make sure that I'm okay as I'm making these decisions that are important for the company. You know, it's one of the biggest, biggest pain points when I work with founders who are growing their companies, you know, literal pain points is their emotional state. They, I mean, a lot of people, founders burnout, you know, kind of the founder burnout is a big, big issue. And that's an emotional thing. Burnout is emotional. It's about your emotions because they don't really know how to manage their emotions very effectively. It's not a skill that's taught to, to them. It's not the skill that's taught in, you know, M MBA programs. So many folks don't even go for MBA programs. It's not something that you're taught. And I know how to do it from my background in behavioral science, cognitive biases. So I knew, have, knew how to change myself internally. But if you don't change yourself internally, if you don't know how to do that effectively, you're really going to burn out pretty quickly for mm -hmm. many people. So obviously, you've learned a lot over your journey. I always like to end on this question is I want you to go back to your younger self, you can take the, mm -hmm. the high school or college days, maybe, but if you were going to slip a post it note back in the alternate dimension to your younger self and give one piece, maybe the, the thing that you've learned the most, maybe it's a quote you've lived by, whatever it is, any insight, what would you share to that younger, um, you know, that maybe prior to being a doctor, but that younger Gleb on, uh, on how to help them in their journey? I think the main thing I would share is ties back to the emotions, learning to be aware of and manage my own emotions effectively because our emotions is the key for what causes us to make the bad decisions. When you're going, again, Tony Robbins telling us to be primal, be savage. You know, I would tell that younger self to not simply go with his gut, to learn when the gut is causing them to make bad decisions and leading them down the wrong path. And make sure to check with their head before going with their gut and learn to be aware of and manage your emotions, manage his emotions. So that's the one piece of advice that I would give. And I think that would really have helped me have a 
substantially better life than I have already had. I'm pretty happy where I am right now, but I think I'd be even happier and more accomplished if I made, if I had emotional self-management decision-making skills earlier. And w- w- did, do you do anything specific on like a time frame? Like I, I, some folks have said, like, if I'm going to make a bigger decision, like I, I give it 24 hours or something, you know, like I, I think through it a little bit. You, we talked earlier about kind of having the data and research and not having the biases, but is there like a time frame you give yourself to make some of these more difficult or harder decisions almost so you don't make that kind of gut, you know, gut reaction? No, I don't have a time frame. It's more about process, making sure that you follow the process. So for some of the decisions, the decisions that I don't want, the daily decisions that I don't want to screw up, there's a five-question technique that I make sure to go through to not screw up the everyday decisions. The first question is, what important information haven't I yet fully considered? So that's about confirmation bias, other cognitive biases that cause me to ignore information that I don't like to hear. That's the fully considered. The important information, that's about the information bias, making sure that I don't look at the relevant information. Then what dangerous cognitive biases might I have missed? So thinking about these cognitive biases from the list, and it's pretty easy to learn about them, then that helps. Then what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? So having that external perspective is really helpful. The next one is how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? So thinking about failure and how to prevent it in the beginning is great. And finally, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? And that makes sure that I'm not stuck in the decision that I already made, that I'm open to revisiting it, and I have certain data points that would cause me to revisit the decision. So having that process, you know, there's five decisions you know, five decisions like that I have to make every day. What kind of an email? Like right now, I'm working on an email about a keynote I'm going to be doing. And I'm talking about, you know, books that I'm going to be signing. And I need to just make certain decisions about how that is going to take place. For And so that's the, definitely a process I will go through as I make a decision, make a decision on that. Then for larger decisions, there's a longer process, which I won't talk through. It's going to be found in my books. But something I really make sure to do as part of this process is to actually get an external perspective from someone whose opinion I trust and respect. And that really makes sure that I I do spend some time on it and I think it through and I get challenged on it. When you look at the decision-making on major decisions, the best way to make sure that you don't screw up a decision is to make sure that you have an external perspective who is different from yours, different coming, you know, not the same as you, not kind of your bosom buddy, but somebody who is ready to challenge you and as you talk through this decision. And that is a really helpful way of making sure that you don't screw up a decision. Mm. That is a great way to end on. That was some some fabulous insight. I'm excited to actually go back and, and get those questions and uh, kind of go through that. So uh, Dr. Glove, this has been awesome. Um, I really appreciate the in-depth um, approach that you take to it. And obviously, you know, we, just with it, it, it seems like being a, a behavioral scientist and kind of the, the research and that mind, I think that's so important to have that in making decisions. So I appreciate your insight there, um, sharing. Where can everyone connect with you if they wanted to say hello? Um, drop a line, whatever. What's the best place to find you? Well, the best place to find my book, Returning to Office and Managing Hybrid and Remote Teams, Benchmarking to Best Practices for Competitive Advantage, simply on Amazon. You know, it's easy. Everyone can go there. And you'll find all of my other books there, too. Now, my own resources you can find, as well as books, of course, is going to be on Disaster Avoidance Experts 
That's multiple experts.com. So disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's blogs, podcasts, video casts, online courses, manuals, guides, books, coaching, training, consulting services. That's and check out the free eight video module based course on making the wisest decisions, where the first module is an assessment on these cognitive biases, dangerous judgment errors in the workplace. That's going to be at disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Awesome. And I'll link everything up in the uh, in the show notes. Dr. Glenn, thanks again, man. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it, Brian. This was really fun indeed. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview. And thanks again for stopping by the Just Get Started podcast. Uh, Grateful to have you here. And if I could just make one quick ask before you run along on your day. You know, I've grown this podcast organically over the last three plus years. And it's from the great listeners that pick up, you know, a quote or a key learning or just enjoy the entertainment of the podcast. And they share it out to their audience. They leave a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, And I'd ask that for you as well. If you've made it to this point and are listening in, um, a lot of the podcast uh, platforms that you listen on have a share button right there where you can share it out to your audience on various platforms. So I would be so appreciative if you wouldn't mind taking a quick second to do that um, if you really enjoyed this episode. So thanks again. Um, Happy to connect online. I always love to meet new people. So if you want to go to my website, brianandraco.com, or connect with me. I'm at Brian Andreco, basically everywhere on Instagram, Twitter, even Clubhouse, that new app that's out there. Uh, you name it. So uh, follow me online and uh, certainly look forward to connecting further. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mm-hmm.